Wonderful. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And it is December. It is the beginning of the Christmas season. And so uh, if, like me, you spend a, a little bit of time on the internet, you know this is the season for internet debates, like is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? And of course, the debate, the perennial debate about the song that we just heard, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Uh, this is a song that was originally released in 1947, uh, and it was uh, the guy who wrote it, his name was Frank Lucer. Uh, he and his wife originally started performing it, like, just at their Christmas party at their house. Like, they'd sit at the piano and sing it together, and it was so cute, and then someone decided to uh, publish it and release it, and it, it became a huge sensation. Uh, it was in the early 2000s, uh, when, like, blogging culture was kind of at its height, that a few people pointed out that the lyrics in this song maybe you're a little bit creepy, right? Uh, like, uh, to be fair, what seems to be happening, right, is this couple has been on a date, they've gone back to the man's house, and then the woman is saying, well, you know, like, probably time for me to get out of here, and he's trying to pressure her to stay, uh, for I, I'm sure just drinking tea and hot cocoa and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and she keeps trying to get out the door, and he keeps trying to pressure her to stay, and in an age when... Uh, we were all trying to be more thoughtful about consent and about mutual respect in relationships, the song felt a little sketchy. Uh, lines like, hey, what's in this drink? Uh, were very sketchy. People were saying, oh, is this like a roofie or something like that? Uh, so, so there was this sort of, I don't know about a big wave, but there was a push for people to say, hey, maybe it's time that we sort of retire this song. Right, and we just put it back. It's not even like a super Christmassy Christmas song anyway, right? Like it's, it's, it's set when it's cold outside, which does happen during a time that it's Christmas. But other than that, it's not like specifically Christmassy. So let's, what if we just let it go? But then some other folks came along and they said, hey, what you're missing is that this song is actually, uh, when, when it was written, it was super progressive. Uh, for instance, that line, what's in this drink, apparently, it turns out, according to some social historians, was actually a pretty common joke in the 1940s and 50s, saying that there's basically nothing in the drink. It's all, you know, non-alcoholic. There's, there's so little uh, booze in the cocktail that it's, it's essentially harmless. Uh, and then uh, there, was, there were a couple of feminist scholars who have said that this song actually, for its time, provided women with a lot more opportunity to express their desires and their wants than, than was expected of women at the time. So when the song was released in the late 40s, it actually sort of opened up some space for liberation for women. Uh, not a ton, right, but more than there was. So it was actually, for its time, kind of progressive. Now, who's right, right? Is this song progressive? Or is this song something that maybe uh, is a little bit creepy today? When you hear both sides of the argument, I think it's really easy to see that both sides have their points. Uh, and that's what I think is fascinating about this song. Songs like Baby It's Cold Outside are examples of a time when the spirit of the song has gone out of sync with the text of the song. Text that was at one time really probably fun and liberating uh, can become a little creepy and old-fashioned, not in a good way. And I, we're starting with this song today because uh, the scriptures that we're going to be looking at today actually have that same sort of feel. Uh, when, when we read the scriptures that we're going to be reading today, it's easy for us to look at them and say, ooh, I don't know, that feels a little like, uh, bad. You know, not, 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 um, not edgy in a good way, right? Edgy maybe in a way that is a kind of religion we're trying to escape from. But at the time that they were written, 
at the time that they were delivered, uh, they were texts that were really liberative, that, that assured people that God is present with us, that God is standing against injustice, and that God has good plans for the world and good plans for you and me. So that would be helpful to start with a song like Baby, It's Cold Outside to kind of give us that sense of uh, unease that maybe is helpful in looking at some of these texts. Uh, this is the beginning of Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And, and so we're beginning by looking at how God uh, is moving in the world and how God is present in the world and what it means for us to hope for God to return. Uh, each Sunday of Advent, we light a candle as a way of remembering that God is the light of the world and that when we see this candle burning, as we light candles week to week to week, we can remember that God is present with us and that we are anticipating God's return so that we can be about God's good work. So uh, today our candle lighter is going to be Sarah Dunlap. And again, she's going to... uh, She's going to read for us from the scriptures for today and then light that first candle for us. And then I'm going to hand it over to Chanel and Cynthia for us to begin worshiping. So would you welcome Sarah Dunlap, please? Today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the four weeks that we spend as a church preparing for the Christmas celebration. It's a season of preparing to welcome Jesus into the world. And uh, the, the season of Advent is actually a... Uh, a reflection or a, a participation in the way God's people waited for hundreds of years for God to come to earth the first time in the first Christmas. And we do that as a way to anticipate God returning to the world. Because for us, part and parcel of the Christmas story is that God didn't just come to the world one time. But uh, his whole birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension to the throne of heaven uh, is all about him not being finished with the world. And so when we see you know, evil and injustice in the world today, we understand that God is not finished with us. God is not finished with the world, that God will return. And so we anticipate that return. We long for that return, for God to put an end once and for all to evil and suffering. And, and we, we learn how to prepare well for that by looking at how our spiritual ancestors prepared for God's arrival the first time. Now, Advent is a season of fasting. It's a season of preparing. And uh, if you've known me very long, you know that it's kind of one of my favorite soapboxes. And I think that our culture rushes too quickly headlong into the Christmas preparations. Again, as I mentioned, it's now happening even in mid-October. And uh, I, even though, if you'll bear with me, even though it's one of my favorite soapboxes, I, I do think it is an important thing for us to note that there are kind of two different ways to celebrate uh, or uh, to use the, spirit, the term of spiritual practicing to feast, right? The, the, the spiritual practice of feasting. Uh, one of them is where we sort of use the sentimentality of celebration as a shield to protect us from bad feelings or bad experiences, right? And we say, I don't want to feel those things. I don't want to think about those things. I don't want to look at those things. So instead, I'm just going to kind of turn my back to them and manufacture some joy and peace and happy feelings uh, so, that, so that I feel better. Right, so I don't look at those things. Uh, that, I, th- I think, is an unfortunate way to celebrate, and it's, it's not the kind of celebration we see in the Scriptures. Uh, and I think it's why fasting, it's so important to pair it with the discipline of feasting or preparation. Uh, fasting and feasting belong together because when we link them together, they help us to engage the world as it is, uh, which is, again, a world that is mixed. There's, there's some beauty and truth and goodness in the world. There's also a lot of evil, injustice, pain, and depression, and then all kinds of stuff in between. 
And uh, what I don't want us to do in our preparation for the Christmas season is uh, shield ourselves from the real pain in the world and the real pain in our own lives uh, simply for the sake of having some artificial cheer. Uh, I, I want our celebration to really be grounded in authentic faith and hope, the, the conviction that God is not done with us. And because God is not done with us, we can celebrate uh, whether we're in a space where celebration seems like the normal and right thing to do, or whether we're in a space where it seems like the last thing we would want to do. So with all that in mind, uh, I want to go into the scriptures today, which as I mentioned in the welcome, are scriptures that don't immediately lend themselves to seeming particularly Christmassy or honestly even particularly uh, like something we would find in Advent. So we're going to begin in Psalm 80. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 80 with us or click over there or however you're getting there. Now, the Psalms are the songbook of God's people. They're the, the songs that they would sing when they were gathered in worship. They're songs that they would sing as they were going to the temple. We're going to look at those in a couple weeks, right? But, but they're sort of songs that reflected every aspect of life. And in this particular song, we're going to encounter one of our favorite Christmas decorations, uh, but it's one that doesn't look anything like what we think it does, and that is a cherub, or uh, actually the plural cherubim, because it's a Hebrew word. Now, when I say cherub or cherubim, you probably think adorable, cute little baby angels, right? Um, that's, uh, if you Google image search it, that's a lot of what you're going to come up with. Uh, they're the little angels you see kind of on the tops of Christmas trees or like all over Christmas cards and things like that. We love, we love these beatific little baby cherubs, right? They're just adorable. Uh, unfortunately, those are not at all what the Bible describes cherubs, cherubim to be. Uh, and this is super weird, okay, but it's, it's real. <laughs> uh, cherubs are actually these like, uh, they're sort of like these lion hybrid eagle people things. Uh, they, they have the bodies of lions, they have wings, usually described as wings of eagles, and then they have usually they're described as the face of a human. Uh, yeah, so they, these, are, these are some carvings of cherubim-like things. They were a common creature in the mythology of the ancient Near East. So like we found them in Egypt and in Babylon and in Assyria and like Canaan and all the different places. Uh, the cherubim are the particularly Hebrew version of this creature, okay? Uh, and they show up all over the place in the Bible. Uh, again, we usually, we often just don't see them because we're looking for the cute little angel babies, which obviously these are not. Uh, they may be cute little angel babies when they're small. I don't know. We don't have a lot of baby cherubim stories. But uh, yeah, these are the cherubim. And where they mostly show up actually is that there's, is, uh, when the Ark of the Covenant is constructed, it says that there are two cherubim on the top of the Ark and they're, they're actually facing each other and their wings are kind of covering the Ark. And then when Solomon built his temple right outside the temple entrance, uh, when you would go into what's called the holy place, he put two giant cherubim statues that are facing out, like, so you'd have to, like, walk past them as you come in. Hebrew scholars have identified the cherubim essentially as uh, sort of border guards, okay? They protect, and it's, this is where it's unclear. It's unclear whether they protect us from God or that they protect God from us. 
okay? But uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not a too much of a leap to think of them as Cerebus, the, the three-headed dog that guards the gates of Hades in Greek mythology. They're sort of a similar thing. The cherubim uh, hang out at the border between heaven and earth, like where that zone where you might cross it, and they, they just sort of make sure that no one who is unholy gets into heaven. And then it also seems as though they sort of keep God's holiness from leaking out into the world. Because again, if you've read much of the Hebrew Bible, you know that like anytime a human encounters God's holiness and they're not really, really, really careful, they end up dead. Like the guy who caught the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from falling and he just like dropped dead. Or, um, you know, there's the, the story we have of the high priest who goes into the holiest of holies once a year and they had to tie a rope around his ankle just in case he wasn't prepared enough and he got struck dead and they could, you know, pull him out without also having to go in there and get struck dead. So, when you see a cherub, or when you see cherubim in the Bible, it's sort of like a beware of God sign. Okay? It's like saying, you, you need to check yourself. You need to slow down because you've entered into a very dangerous place, and if you go any further, it probably will not end well for you. Okay? That's what an ancient person thought when they saw a cherub. Okay? Not, oh, look at the little baby, right? Which is mostly what most of us think when we see cherubim today, okay? So with all of that in mind, we're gonna read just the first verse of Psalm 80 again. Sarah read it for us earlier, but we didn't know what a cherub was at that point. So we're gonna read it again with this new information about cherubim and just kind of, uh, I want you to kind of hang out for a moment with how this makes you think and feel about God, Okay? So here's, here's Psalm 80, verse 1. It says, Please listen. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory. So again, enthroned above the cherubim is a specific reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, because between the cherubim, where they're looking inward, that's where they understood God to live. That was God's physical presence on earth, in the temple, above the cherubim. Or it seems as much keeping God from leaking out and hurting us as it is keeping anyone from getting into where God is. And the psalm says, please listen to us please. And then we have these two radically different images of God, the shepherd who leads the flocks, and then the one who's enthroned above the cherubim. Uh-oh. Right? A shepherd who lovingly cares for sheep, and then this incredibly dangerous figure who has to be regulated and, and we have to be protected from. This is where I said, like, sort of like, baby, it's cold outside. This scripture is one that we don't use much anymore. We're kind of like, oh, we, we like the God, the shepherd stuff. That makes us feel, that feels nice, right? This dangerous God among the cherubim thing, in addition to being very weird, uh, it also just feels like maybe we, we don't like talking about God that way, as dangerous. And yet, this is an image of God we see repeatedly throughout the scriptures. And I th one of the places I think is really helpful to get our minds around how to think about this, I think in a helpful way, is actually uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, if you haven't read those or seen the movies, uh, spoilers, the lion is Jesus, right? 
um, Aslan the Lion of Narnia. But when the kids first arrive in Narnia, one of the first people they encounter is actually Santa Claus. And they're all excited until Santa tells them that because of the white witch and because of what she's done to Narnia, she's trapped it in a world which I think is a kid's worst nightmare. It's always winter and never Christmas. Right? Like, is there something worse? I defy you to tell me something worse than always winter, never Christmas, right? It's just awful. And so part of what the kids are there to do is to, to join Aslan in liberating Narnia from the spell of the White Witch, where it's, you know, always fasting, never feasting, right? And so as they begin to learn that there is this Aslan figure, this lion who can help them defeat the White Witch, they... Uh, I think very wisely say, uh, so this lion, like it's, a, it's safe, right? We, as children, are fine to approach this lion. They're talking to a character named Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver describes Aslan this way. He says, uh, safe? Well, no, 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 who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan, the lion, who is Jesus, is not a safe lion because he's a lion, okay? He's not safe, but he is good. And friends, this is where I think this sort of language helps us frame the language we find in the Psalms, the language we're going to see from the prophet Isaiah here in a few minutes. I don't think in our world we actually want a God who is safe, a God who is domesticated, a God who looks more like a beatific baby than some kind of mysterious, possibly dangerous figure who dwells among the cherubim. Because the beatific baby has very little to say to a world that is steeped in injustice, a world that is torn by war, a a world that is torn by abuse and betrayal, generational sins, generational trauma. And we want a God who is not uh, ignoring those things in our world. We want a God who is going to confront those things and overcome those things and put an end to those things. So so I think at the end of the day, we don't want a God who is safe. Uh, We want a God who is dangerous to to those kinds of things. Uh, And the assurance that we need is the assurance that that Mr. Beaver gives the the kids in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Well, no, he's not, not safe, but he's good. And so I want to I pause here. I want to invite Chanel and Cynthia back up to lead us in another song because I think, I think it's worth celebrating this God who does care about the evils in the world, the evils in our own lives, this God who, who is not ambivalent to or ignorant of them, but a God who really does have a plan to overcome and combat those evils. Uh, and we can trust this God, not because this God is safe, but because this God is good. So I want to hand it back over and I want to invite you to stand and sing with me as we return into worship. Who is not safe, uh, sorry, is, uh, yeah, is not safe, but is good. Uh, who engages us in a season where we are preparing to celebrate Jesus' advent into the world, Jesus' arrival among us. Uh, what, what implications does this have, I think, for us personally? Uh, because I think, it's, I think it's all well and good for us to see the evils in the world and to say, yes, we, we agree with God that these are evils. We agree with God that they should be overturned and we can celebrate that. 
Uh, but I think it's, that's a more difficult thing for us when it comes to facing the things in our own lives that maybe we need to spend the next four weeks uh, examining and repenting of and giving, giving to God so that we can be healed from them as well. And yet, this too is an essential part of the Advent journey. Uh, so uh, in your Bibles, go ahead and turn from Psalm 80 over to Isaiah 64. Uh, now again, as, you, as you're turning to Isaiah 64, this is from a section of the book of Isaiah that was written probably about 100 years after uh, the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon. So there's, there's three sections of the book of Isaiah Scholars even call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah, but it's, for us, it's just all one big book. The first section was written uh, way before the exile. Uh, the second section was, was written right after the people returned. And then the last section was written, again, about 100 years later. It's long enough after they return from the exile that uh, everyone sort of knows that it just doesn't feel like they thought it was going to feel. It doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel like the good old days. You know, it doesn't, uh, some, of the, some of the shine of being back has worn off and the newness has gone away. And so a lot of the people are sort of in this like spiritual ennui where they just, nothing's like, nothing's like super wrong. There's not a crisis or anything like that. It just doesn't feel awesome. It feels fine, I guess, you know? And, and so... The prophet is speaking to them, saying, uh, we need God's presence. We need God to, to come back to us and be among us yet again. And again, the thing to remember about the, the Hebrew people, especially once they're back from exile, is they, they have understood that the, the reason the exile happened in the first place, this massive uh, apocalyptic calamity that hit their culture was because of their own unfaithfulness to the covenants, right? The reason God finally gave them over to Babylon is because they persisted for generations in choosing to reject God's kingship and God's rule and God's way and choosing instead to ally themselves with other nations, to worship other gods, to the point that God finally said, okay, fine, have it your way, have what you want, and then Babylon conquered them. So you'll hear that here as the people are saying, look, we understand that we're in a, you know, we're, we understand that we're in the bed that we made for ourselves. Like, we, we, we get all of that, right? What we're asking now is for, uh, for God to return to us, right? God to come to us and to move again. And so uh, I, I think one of the things that really strikes me about this passage is the, like, the raw vulnerability and authenticity that the prophet speaks on behalf of the people in a way of inviting us to speak with him and to say, uh, yeah, God, search us and know us and cleanse us and return to us. So, so let's read beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses and skip down to 7 through 9. Uh, but just kind of hear, hear what the prophet is, is pleading to God. It says, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. The, the Hebrew there is actually, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. You would like tear them apart and, and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. And then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. Oh, when you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And, oh, how mountains quaked. But no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us. And you have turned us over to our sins. And yet... O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, 
and you are the potter. We all are formed by your hand, so don't be angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. Again, I'm struck here by that opening that says, uh, you know how there's all those cool stories in the Bible, like the Red Sea and like Gideon putting out the fleece and like all these cool stories where God does these amazing things? The prophet says, could we get some of that? Right? Some of those amazing marvels, some of those undeniable uh, moments when God comes to the defense of God's people. Could we have some of those too? So if you've ever felt that way, I've certainly felt that way. You're not alone. People in the Bible felt that way. And then, they, then, then he says, uh, we understand. We understand that, that all of this happened because of us. You gave us over to our sins because we kept, we kept ignoring you. But it's that last bit that just really gets me, right? Give us another shot. Don't turn away from us forever. You know and we know that you are our God. So be our God again. It's that insistence that better days are coming. It's that insistence that though we live in dark times, there is a candle burning. It's that insistence that even our own sins do not separate us from God's love, but that God is always the one who will rush to forgive. And so this this whole poem by the prophet is this long uh, plea to God, saying, God, return to us, cleanse us, make us new, make us your people. And friends, this is such an appropriate prayer as we begin the Advent season, as we look ahead at the four weeks that we have to prepare for Christmas. And we say, what in my life needs to be transformed? Right? What in my life needs to be confessed and repented of? What in my life needs to be put away? Or maybe what in my life needs to, you know, gotten out of the cupboard and dusted off and put back, you know, put back in its right place. Advent is a whole season leading up to Christmas where we're invited to slow down, which is sort of the opposite of what we're encouraged to do during this season, right? It's a whole opportunity for us to slow down and consider, are we really ready for God to tear open the heavens and descend? Are we so sure that we're on God's side? Or are there ways that we have straight away? Can we spend the next several weeks together intentionally preparing for what it looks like when God returns? Even as we continue to look at our world and to pray for peace and to pray for hope and to pray for joy and to pray for, uh, again, as, as the Christmas story says, right, peace on earth and goodwill for all peoples. Can we do both of those things during this season? And I, I hope you feel that as an invitation because that's how it's meant, right? That we would pray to the God who dwells among the cherubim, the God who is good but who is not safe, the God who will tear open the heavens and descend to us and cause the mountains to tremble. That's, that's sort of the, uh, the theme that is circling around the prayer of examine today uh, as, we, as we approach the communion table. Again, a table that reminds us that uh, God is 
good. That God is the one who provides a space for us at God's own table. So as we approach today, I'm going to give you some space to reflect. And I'm, I'm asking you, as we're beginning this Advent season, to spend some time really reflecting on your own uh, spirit, your own readiness to celebrate Christmas, your own willingness to welcome Jesus among us. Uh, what does it look like for you to be ready? What does it look like for us together to be ready as a community? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you those, those questions. I'm going to give you some time to prayerfully reflect on them. And then we're going to receive communion together and celebrate that as a congregation. So here's the first question I want you to consider. As we enter Advent, where am I experiencing joy and peace and hope? Now, where am I experiencing pain, despair, or anxiety? How can I be honest with God about these experiences in this coming week? Same way the prophet was, right? Finally, what does hope look like for me this Advent over these next weeks leading up to Christmas? What, is, what does hope look like for me? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today that we might experience your holiness. We understand that you are a God who is maybe not safe, uh, particularly in the face of evil and injustice. And yet, because we know you through your son, Jesus, we know that you are good. It's that goodness, it's that faithfulness that enables us to come before you by faith and be honest about where we are as we enter into this season of preparation 
Some of us are in a space where celebrating makes a lot of sense. Things are good right now, and we, uh, we're grateful to you for that blessing. But others of us are in a space where celebrating seems like the last thing that we would, we would be able to do right now. Our, our relationships are difficult, or our jobs are difficult, or uh, maybe everything is just difficult right now. And it can be really difficult for us to imagine celebrating in any kind of way. No matter where we are on that spectrum, we need you. We want to be ready when you return. We want to be ready when you rend the heavens and come down and put an end to evil and injustice once and for all. We want to find ourselves on the right side of that. And so as we come to your table today, we come asking you to search us, to know us, and to point out anything within us that offends you so that we might confess that to you and be healed. As we receive these elements, we pray that they would be a spiritual food, that in receiving them, we might too receive the grace we need to stand before you by faith and to stand in the loving light of your gaze and again, be healed of all that would bring death in our lives. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for continuing the work of liberation in our lives and in our world. And thank you for inviting us to your table today. And so we approach now and receive these elements in the name of your son, Jesus. This is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he was killed. And it was at that meal that he broke bread and gave it to us and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave us a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, my two front teeth, my two front teeth. Gee, if I could only have my two front teeth, then I could wish you Merry Christmas. It seems so long since I could say, Sister Susie sitting on a thistle. Gosh, oh gee, how happy I'd be if I could only whistle. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, my two front teeth, my two front teeth. Gee, if I could only have my two front teeth, then I could wish you Merry Christmas. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, two front teeth, two front teeth. Gee, if I could only have my two front teeth, then I could wish you Merry Christmas. It seems so long since I could say, Sister Susie sitting on a thistle. Gosh, oh gee, how happy I'd be if I could only whistle. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, two front teeth, two front teeth. Gee, if I could only have my two front teeth, then I could wish you Merry Christmas. It seems so long since I could say, Sister Susie sitting on a thistle.
Christmas. 